Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 176 of the Lawyerist podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Michael Port about how to rehearse for your next oral argument. Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, Spotlight Branding, and New Law Business Model. We appreciate their support, and we'll tell you more about them later in the show. Our guest today has a free white paper for listeners, 50 tips you can't afford to ignore if you want to wow your audience and win praise and plaudits every time. You can find a link to it in the show notes for this episode. So last fall in episode 142, we spoke with my friend Pete Vargas about how to use public speaking as a marketing tool for your firm. And I got to spend a bunch of time with Michael Port and his wife and business partner, Amy, at Pete's Reach Academy Live Conference in Colorado last fall. And in addition to Sam's specific conversation with Michael today about oral arguments, Michael happens to be one of the nation's leading coaches and trainers on how to use public speaking to grow your firm. And I think it's really worthwhile for lawyers to dig a little deeper, both with Pete Vargas and episode 142 and with the things Michael offers to understand how public speaking beyond just CLE can be a really valuable tool for lawyers to market and grow their firms. I'm going to make one plug here. If you haven't seen it yet, Lawyerist Lens is up on YouTube and Facebook. This is our weekly video show where I indulge my curiosity with interesting people about law practice. You can find it on YouTube and on Facebook on our page. And you should check it out, subscribe on YouTube, like the page on Facebook so you're more likely to see new episodes, and I hope you enjoy it. Now we've got a brief conversation with Cameron Reichert from Answer One, and then we'll jump into my conversation with Michael. Hi, my name is Cameron Reichert. I'm the Director of Customer Success, Quality, and Training with Answer One. Hi, Cameron. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So you used a phrase with me in talking about virtual receptionist services, which is obviously what Answer One does. And you said that you acknowledge the death of voicemail. And I don't, you know, that really resonates with me. I don't leave voicemails. I rarely listen to voicemails. To the extent I do, they're transcribed by my iPhone anyway. And I think that is true for most people. So if nobody wants to leave voicemails, where does that kind of leave phone calls and potential client calls and things like that? You're exactly right. I can't tell you the last time I actually left a voicemail somewhere. So we know that if you're calling around shopping, looking for anything, and specifically in the legal space, if you're looking for an attorney, most people, when they reach a voicemail, they're going to hang up. They have questions. They'd like to speak with someone. And we see that often in a case with kind of smaller practices or a solo firm where you have an attorney responsible for answering his or her own calls. During the day, there's likely a 50% chance that someone's reaching voicemail. And when they do, they're most likely hanging up. That makes a lot of sense to me in practices like, say, criminal and family and personal injury, where someone may have two or three or four referrals, or they may be looking at a website where there's a list of lawyers. Mm -hmm. And if they don't get a phone call, they're just going to call the next number down the line. That's exactly right. And we see that it's just, you know, folks will continue calling the next attorney. And we know that two thirds of consumers actually make that decision based 
based on having their call answered promptly. So what needs to happen when you do answer? And does it matter who answers, I guess, is another question. It absolutely matters who answers the phone. You want someone who is warm, friendly, caring, and someone who has the time to listen and ask questions. So like not me, because well, <laughs> when, when I'm interrupted by the phone, I have to get past the fact that I'm annoyed because I was in the middle of something. And if I've picked up the phone, I just want to get back to what I was doing. Well, exactly. And especially, you know, you have kind of either a busy firm or you have attorneys in the middle of something, they need to be somewhere and they don't necessarily have the time, you know, to spend with a prospective client. And during that interaction too, you know, what's really important is asking the right questions to make sure this really is the right client for your firm. So of course, you know, when someone comes and knocks on that door, we want to get them in and we want to make sure that they're the right client for you. So it matters that the phone gets answered and it matters that it gets answered by somebody who's not crabby Sam interrupted. What about after hours calls? Is it okay to let it go to voicemail if somebody's calling after your home for the night? That seems like it could be reasonable. It definitely sounds reasonable, but data suggests that approximately 20% of calls and potential leads are coming in outside of business hours. So there's really a lot of you know potential lost opportunity there, particularly in the criminal space, personal injury, family law segments, we see a lot of consumers, you know, when they're shopping for an attorney, they're at home after work, they're online, you know, making phone calls, submitting web forms. So it's important that you have someone available to assist them around the clock. I suppose that makes sense. I don't take time out of my day to do non-business things all the time. I'm at work and I'm working and we shouldn't probably expect it to be any different for our clients. They're dealing with their personal problems on their personal time. If you'd like to know more about Answer One, you can visit answerone.com slash lawyerist. That's answer, the number one, dot com slash lawyerist. You can get $300 off your first three months with Answer One. That's $100 a month off. And by the time this podcast airs, you'll also be able to get a white paper with tips on increasing your leads and conversions. Thanks so much for being with us, Cameron. Thanks for having me. Hi, this is Michael Port. I am the author of seven books, including Book Yourself Solid and Steal the Show. The books have been on the New York Times bestseller list, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and others. And I'm the co-founder of Heroic Public Speaking Worldwide. My wife is the other co-founder. Amy Port is her name. And we have a corporate division and a consumer division. So we work on communication skills and public speaking with people from all over the world and people who work for organizations all over the world. Hi, Michael. I'm so glad to have you with us. And you didn't mention this, but I want to really make sure that it comes out. A lot of people who talk about public speaking to businesses come from a business background and you don't. You and your wife are both come from an acting background, if I'm right. Uh, yes and yes. So <laughs> I do actually come from a business background, uh, but before that, no. I was an actor, as was my wife. I have an MFA from NYU's graduate acting program, and my wife has her MFA from the Yale School of Drama. And so we spent the early part of our careers working professionally in theater, film, TV, lots of commercials. Uh, if you're in your 40s, you would have heard my voice uh, doing many of the taglines for your favorite brands during the 90s. And, okay, you got to give me an example. Okay, sure. So do you remember 1-800-CALL-ATT? <laughs> yes. Remember that? 
Yeah. Or how about at Pizza Hut? We've got so many pizzas, you can do something different every day. So many pizzas, one great deal. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, and they all have this, they all have the same rhythm, by the yeah. way. They, they all roll uh, pretty much the same way. I remember I spent eight hours one day in a studio saying this about 500 different ways. Bra, smart thinking. <laughs> And then you, what happens is you've got a group of 12 people, some from the client, some from the agency, and each person wants to get, you know, their very creative voice into this one little tagline. Directing by committee, huh? Oh, yeah. One guy will say, can you do it with a little bit more rye in your voice? Okay, sure. Great. Raw. <laughs> smart thinking. Oh, that's great. Now, someone, and it's literally the same way every single time, but someone will say with more rise, someone will say with more smile, someone will say cheekiness, someone will say with more gravitas, and you're like, well, okay. And of course, by the end of the day, which take do they use? The first one. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so that was that was the world of voiceovers for a long time, but it you know paid the rent, and I was grateful to have the work. And then uh, after that, then I went into business uh, in the fitness industry on the business side. So I wasn't a trainer. Uh, but I uh, ran divisions of a company called the Sports Club Company, and then I uh, helped build a company in New York City called Clay. And then in 2003, I went out on my own and started writing books and consulting on, at that time, personal branding, business development for service-based businesses, because I had had a lot of experience with people who were independent professionals because of the position I was in at the uh, sports club company. Hmm. And then over the years, the company morphed into heroic public speaking because the way that we taught public speaking was so dramatically different than what most people had experienced because we were basing it on our graduate level training in acting. And my theory is that we're all performers. Every single one of us and Shakespeare said it. He said, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. So if you think about it, when you're in court and you're you know, making an opening argument or closing statement or interviewing a witness, you're playing a role. And you've chosen that role, hopefully, very carefully based on what the jury needs you to be. Mm -hmm. What role does the jury need you to play in order to see... Uh, your client's, you know, point of view and, you know, deliver a verdict in your favor. And we have a different role when, you know, with our spouse uh, that is different than the role we have with our children, which is different than the role we have with our partners, which is different than the role we have with our friends from high school. But we don't often think of the roles specifically because we just think we're one person, but we are really very interesting creatures. There are so many different sides to our personality that we often don't express. And I think that if we tap into more aspects of our personality, give ourselves some more range, then we tend to feel more comfortable in different situations or scenarios that we might not normally find ourselves in. But we're much more flexible and malleable and adaptable. And great performers are very adaptable. I think that's sort of getting at a question that just popped into my head while, while you were saying that, which is how, what's the interplay between performance and all of this buzz about authenticity, right? We're supposed to be authentic in everything we do because everyone can spot a phony and especially on social media when we're making videos uh, that we might want to promote on YouTube or Facebook. It's all about authenticity. How do you reconcile that with your perspective that it's also a performance at the same time? I reconcile it very easily because authenticity is a very squishy concept. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Often authenticity actually means 
your truth. So, you know, ever heard someone says, listen, I, I'm, uh, I'm just going to say this and you know, it, this is just my truth. Mm-hmm. So th- that's not, that's not a truth. If it's just your truth, it's not a truth. It's your opinion or perspective, which is fine because we all have different opinions and perspectives. So if somebody was actually authentic when, let, okay, let, I'll give you a really very hyper-specific example. So you have a client who is a serious pain in the neck who is doing everything you know, possible to sabotage uh, their defense, and they're driving you up the wall. And they just you know, told you something right before you're about to uh, go into court that was a bit of a bombshell and really threw you off your game. Well, if you were completely authentic, you would walk into that courtroom and, and you'd say something to the judge and the jury and everybody else, like, listen, my client is a fucking pain in the ass. You can, <laughs> you can bleep that out if you want. No way. But, and they just bombed this, you know, like told this thing and he's like really difficult. And frankly, he probably did it. So, you know, I'll do my best. Okay. That might actually be authentic for how you're feeling at that moment. But would you ever do it? Right. No, of course idea. not. Yeah. Of course not. <laughs> we are always playing a certain role based on what? Our objective and what we believe we need to do or say in order to achieve that objective. Mm-hmm. Now, hopefully the objectives you have are in line with the values that you stand for and also the objective you have serves other people also, yeah. you know, the people that are involved in that process. So this, this, uh, authenticity is a little bit tricky because if everybody was actually authentic, I think we'd have more problems. We don't think we'd, each one another are assholes. Yeah. We'd, be, you know, we'd say, and maybe it'd be better. We just say anything and stop, you know, <laughs> pretending and hiding how we actually feel. But look, in all seriousness, one of the reasons that people are so compelled by actors like Tom Hanks or Meryl Streep or Daniel Day-Lewis is because when they're performing, they seem real. Mm-hmm. You believe them. Why? Well, does Tom Cruise think that he's actually in World War II hmm. uh, when he's filming uh, you know, a period piece and that the clothes are actually his clothes? And No, of course not. He knows that he's playing a character. Now, Daniel Day-Lewis is a little different. He actually really likes to be a little bit more method in his performance. Like when he was playing the president, you know, he would text you as the president, which of course is weird because <laughs> you know, I don't think Abe Lincoln had... Yeah, I like that idea. <laughs> ...mobile. Uh, but nonetheless... When you're seeing Tom Hanks or Meryl Streep, the feelings they're having are real feelings. They're open enough to allow themselves to step into that role and play the part that's necessary. But many of us haven't experienced allowing ourselves the freedom to access different parts of our personality and show them to people in the ways that, you know, performers like Meryl Streep or Tom Hanks have had the opportunity to. But that's what our clients want, right? Our clients want us to believe in them and to support right. their their side of things. And, and I think that's, that's right. kind of what you're saying is you have to put yourself in the position of an advocate who actually believes in your client, which hopefully that's you exactly are. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And let me, let me give you a real fundamental uh, performance uh, tactic or, or I'd say methodology really, because I think you'll, you'll, surprised at how similar it is to the way you and all of your listeners think about their job as an attorney. When you're an actor, or as a litigator especially, if you're an actor and you get cast in a role, first thing you do is try to identify the objective of the character that you're playing. What does this character want? 
by the end of this script, what do they want? What are they trying to achieve? Now, of course, the character may not know at the beginning, but over time, they often have an insight of some kind, and then they go and pursue it. And so they're the protagonist. And then generally, there's an antagonist or multiple antagonists who are getting in their way. And then once you know what this objective is, then you can choose the different tactics you're going to use to achieve that objective as a performer. So what, how are you going to get the other performers to feel? Mm. How are you going to get, mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you want them to think? What do you want them to do? Because you're trying to get what you want. And then if the writing is good, of course, the authors put all sorts of hurdles in your way. And that's what produces the drama, the conflict. Now, of course, as people, we don't want to, we don't need any more drama. We're not trying to produce drama. But what we're trying to do is choose the right tactics to achieve our objective. Now, our objective may be getting people to think differently or feel differently or act differently. And anytime you're doing that, I think you're performing. That's what the actor does. That's the fundamental tenant of any great performance is understanding here is what I want to achieve. And these are the actions that I'm going to play to achieve it. So if I know what my objective is and I know, okay, I want you to think this way. I want you to feel this thing. or I want you to do this. Then I'm going to choose tactics like this. Well, maybe I'll provoke you. All right. Well, that didn't work very well. You know what? I'm going to soothe you. All right. That didn't work very well. Now I'm going to, you keep choosing different tactics until you actually achieve your objective. It's a very deliberate exercise in empathy. It's a very deliberate exercise in empathy. And that's what performers do. And I think that if we are more intentional about the role that we need to play in a given situation, the specific objective that we have for that situation, and what we need to do to achieve that objective, uh, we often don't get sidetracked. For example, when I, I, I'm married uh, now, and uh, I have the most lovely wife in the world, and I have also a lovely former wife. I was married once before, and we had a child together, and we're very close. Uh, but when we first got separated, it was a little tense at the time. And every once in a while, we'd be having a conversation where we did not see eye to eye. And I'd find myself getting a little distracted by the sort of emotional charges, uh, you know, that resulted from not seeing eye to eye. And uh, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. And he said, well, what are you actually trying to achieve like in that situation? What do you want to make happen? And I told him, he said, all right, well, that's your goal. So if you just think about your goal and you only focus on achieving that goal and do not get sidetracked by these little you know, charges along the way, then you're much more likely to achieve your goal. And if you don't achieve the goal, well, at least you're not all worked up in the process. You're still just focused on trying to achieve the goal. I thought, well, that makes sense. And I, I started trying it. It seems so simple, but it was absolutely brilliant. And I thought, what? This is what I've been trained to do. I know how to do this. <laughs> right. It's good I, lawyering 101 too, is keep your eye on the, on the objective and stop trying to defend every little thing and react yeah. to every little thing. And yeah. Yep. And that's when I realized, oh, wait, I, I have mastery of that craft. I can do that. Can I apply it to my regular life in the way that I applied it to stage? And would it still be authentic? And the answer is absolutely. Because think about a chameleon for a second. A chameleon is a little lizard that can change colors to blend into its environment. Now, sometimes human beings will call someone a chameleon as an insult. Ah, you're such a chameleon. Well, maybe somebody is, I would say, fabricating who they are, and that's not a chameleon. That's very, very different. A chameleon is absolutely authentic. A chameleon is actually red when it's on a red leaf and actually green when it's on a green leaf. It's not pretending to be red and it's not pretending to be green. So as long as you are not 
pretending to be someone other than you are or have something that you don't or can do something that you can't, then I don't think this question of authenticity needs to continue to come up because you're authentically pursuing what you want. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about how to rehearse. We'll be right back. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars. LawPay. The legal environment is more competitive than ever, and small law firms are feeling the pinch. With over 1.3 million attorneys in the United States and counting, it can be hard to stand out from the crowd. That's why Spotlight Branding helps lawyers become unforgettable. Spotlight Branding is a different kind of internet marketing company. They don't put their clients on the SEO hamster wheel. They don't ask them to burn thousands of dollars on speculative pay-per-click advertising. Instead, they're focused on the fundamentals of legal marketing that have worked for centuries. They use the internet to build a premium brand for solo and small firm lawyers. They put systems in place to create top-of-mind awareness, allowing their clients to maximize referrals and repeat business. It's the smart way to grow your law firm. Learn more at spotlightbranding.com lawyerist. If you've ever considered doing estate planning but think it's too dry and boring or have been afraid it might not earn you what you need because you have to compete against LegalZoom or the dreaded $1,500 estate plans, check out the website estateplanningrules.com to get a free guide that lays out step-by-step how some lawyers are regularly commanding average fees of four dollars to $5,000 per estate plan, and you'll discover why regular, everyday people are happy to pay well for estate planning services that you'll love to provide. That's estateplanningrules.com, brought to you by New Law Business Model, where you get to love being a lawyer again. Hey, one more thing before we get back to the conversation. If you haven't already taken the small firm scorecard and you are a solo or small firm lawyer, do it now at go.lawyerist.com scorecard. Look, you listen to this podcast, so you must know the practice of law is changing in important ways. And sooner or later, you are going to feel the effects of those changes in your practice if you aren't feeling them already. So what's your plan? If you are like most of the lawyers we've met over the years, even if you understand the trends shaping the past, present, and future of law practice, you probably don't have a plan. You may not even be sure where to start. So that's why we put together the Small Firm Scorecard, to help lawyers understand what they need to do to position their firm to be successful in the future. It's a free self-assessment. 50 questions for small firms, 40 for solos. The questions cover your goals, strategy, systems, marketing, client service model, finances, and people and staffing. It only takes about 10 minutes, and at the end, you'll know exactly what you need to work on based on your own assessment of how you're doing on each item. Like I said, it's free, it takes about 10 minutes, and you'll end up with a to-do list to prepare your firm for the future. So take it now at go.lawyerist.com scorecard. Okay, we're back, and so, Michael, I am interested in how you approach rehearsal or preparation to give some sort of a public speech, uh, whether it's showing up in court or something else. Rarely do people rehearse for presentations. And when I say rehearse, I don't mean pacing back and forth, muttering to ourselves, or creating uh, an outline and then just going in and working off that outline. When I say rehearsal, I mean a real process for rehearsal that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and can be structured. Uh, You can assign a certain amount of time to, to each activity in the process so that you know how to do it. Very often, people just push back on rehearsal. They say, Michael, I've tried rehearsal. 
or this doesn't work. I've tried it. When I do it, I feel stiff. I feel a little staged and, and I feel constrained. You know, I feel slow. Like I can't get, I can't get the words into my, my head fast enough. Hmm. And so it doesn't work. And I, I just much better winging it. And I think that their assessment is absolutely right on, spot on. I think they, they've nailed it. The reason that they're having trouble when they do a little bit of rehearsal is because they've only done a little bit of rehearsal. Hmm. Because here's what happens when you're just a little bit rehearsed. When you're performing and you're trying to be in the moment and connect with the audience, it's very difficult because you're trying at that same moment to recall something you worked on in the past to repeat it in the present. But by the time you are able to remember the things that you worked on, even if they're nanoseconds or milliseconds, that's enough time to make you feel slow that the words aren't coming to you as quickly as they might otherwise. Because of course, everybody who is listening to this is very verbal and maybe even verbose. Everybody's very, everybody's very articulate. So normally words come quite quickly to them. But if they, if they feel like they slow down, then they don't feel like they can think in the moment and recall what they did. Makes perfect sense. However, if you've done the proper amount of rehearsal, you know your material so well that you can essentially, now this is not literal, this is figurative, let it go. Completely start with nothing in your mind, blank, and then allow it to come to you in the moment. So it feels like it's happening for the very first time ever. Because if you are so prepared that you stay you know, religiously to this very, very tight script and don't deviate, even if the moment calls for deviation, then you have, you've limited yourself. Mm -hmm. If you go in with very little preparation and you spend most of your time winging it, once again, uh, you've limited yourself because it's very rare that most of what you say is going to be applicable. It's going to be appropriate in that particular situation. But when you have enough preparation and you're very good on your feet, so you can improv when you have those together, that's how you produce spontaneity. So sometimes you'll say, yeah, but my God, I don't have that much time, you know, to do that much rehearsal. And that's fair. You won't always, but there is a process that you can use uh, that will help you be much better prepared than you would have been otherwise. And it's the same process that I learned uh, at NYU in grad school. Amy learned at Yale in grad school. And it's not something that one would ever learn outside of those kinds of professional training programs for performers. So mm. nobody should feel bad. They don't know how to rehearse. Nobody was taught in high school or college or business school or law school how to rehearse in the way that uh, an actor would. And here's the process. The, the first step is what's called a table read. A table read is just as it sounds. You sit down at a table with your script printed, not on the computer, printed, and you read it and you make notes. Well, this, where does it sound a little, a little bit stiff, you know, a little bit more uh, written than spoken? Because the written word and spoken word are slightly different. And the way that we articulate our thoughts is not necessarily in sentence form. So if you speak like a legal document, it's going to be very hard to move people to think differently or act differently or feel differently. Yeah, this is something I do. And I notice like the way I write is much more formal and I don't use contractions and I structure sentences deliberately. And, and I almost always write out my presentations before I give them. And I, and I do this step and in reading it out loud, I always spot things. Yes, exactly. If I tried to give it in that state, it would be gross. That's right. So 
this gives us an opportunity to get familiar with it. What feels like it's working? What needs a little bit more, more attention? So you can go back and do an edit, but you can't, when you can, you can do anything you want, but it's generally not helpful to just edit on the screen without reading the script at the table. Mm-hmm. Because you will, when you write on paper, you have an idea of what you want to write. But what actually ends up on the, even if you're an excellent writer, it doesn't always reflect exactly what you were thinking, certainly not the first time. So when you review it visually, you're often going to read it and feel like it's saying what you wanted to say. But then when you hear it out loud, you realize there's a transition missing. There's a hole in the argument uh, over here. Uh, you hear it differently. So then you go back to an edit. Then you come back to another table read, then another edit, then another table read until you get to the point where you feel like you're pretty close to a final. Now, see, people might be thinking, oh, does that mean everything has to be scripted word for word? No. But we do think that the amount of work you give to a speech should be directly proportionate to the stakes of that particular speech. So if it's very low stakes, you know, I mean, I remember you know, I got in a little trouble in high school and uh, my my best friend's father is a lawyer. So his friend who is a criminal, uh, I wasn't doing anything really wrong, but, you know, kids, parties, <laughs> things like that. Uh, but he was like a big time criminal defense attorney in New York. He, you know, he invested, he, he defended the mob and all these other folks. And it's just a tiny little thing that they asked for an ACD for. And when he stood up in court, uh, the judge goes, oh, Mr. Greenfield, what are you doing here? He's ah, my my nephew's uh, friend, blah, blah, blah. But the point is, he didn't prepare any big speech because this for him was not particularly high stakes. But if this was, uh, you know, he was defending somebody who was facing uh, capital punishment, I think he's going to do a lot more work than he did to prep for the little ACD in a day of community service, you know, for a for kid. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say not everything has to be written out. Some people do like to bullet point and write out key points and then work within that. But I actually think you need a lot more work on your speech often when you're doing that kind of bullet pointing with key points, because otherwise... How do you know what's going to come out of your mouth unless you've done a lot of work on it and spent time with it? So we don't believe there's one way to do this. There's not one way to perform. There's not one way to rehearse. There, you know, there's not one style that's correct. There is no secret formula, but a process that allows you to create the work that you want to create is very, very helpful. So that first step is the table read. The second step is what's called content mapping. Content mapping requires that you have written something. Content mapping doesn't really apply if you just have bullet points and and some key points. Content mapping is the time where we look for the following. Operative words or phrases. Operative words or phrases. Now, an operative word or phrase is the most important word or phrase in that thought. I use the word thought intentionally to get us focused on writing in thoughts rather than in sentences. Mm -hmm. And we also breathe in thoughts, not sentences. So you will take a breath naturally that is the size necessary to articulate the size of the thought you just had. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. If you have a small thought, huh, get a hot dog. I didn't need a lot of breath for that. But if you have a thought that's uh, uh, like the, the... the thing you just figured out that is going to be the thing that gets your client off, you go, oh my God, you guys, you have to, and boom, you have all this air to get out this big idea. Mm-hmm. So we, we think in thoughts, yeah, we think in ideas, and then we breathe 
in those ideas. Uh, okay, so so the, you're looking for operative words and operative phrases. Now, the operative words and operative phrases are the things that are most important. The things that if we hit those words or phrases, it's going to tell every listener exactly what we're talking about. So that if you wrote out a script and you underlined the operative words and or phrases throughout, you could remove every other word in the speech and you'd be able to scan those operative words or phrases and know exactly what the speech was about. Gotcha. Then you're also looking for transitions and beats. A transition is just as it sounds, a change. When you're changing from one idea to another, one topic to another, that's a transition. And we need to make sure that transitions are very clear for our audience so that they can go, okay, let me uh, rewind or you know, wipe off the slate and let me start thinking about this again fresh. You actually did this either naturally or intentionally uh, on the program today. You took a commercial break right at the end of our discussion on one topic, and then you moved into a new topic when we came back. So you mm -hmm. essentially pressed refresh, and then we started again. Yeah. So. So that's very important. And the other thing are beats. Now, beats are such a powerful tool. Have you ever, somebody that's been told that they talk too fast, slow down? Oh, sure. You know, like every once in a while, some, yeah, yeah, someone's told you, you really talk too fast. You, you, you should slow down. Or, or a speech teacher might say that. And I understand why the advice is being given, but it's slightly off the mark because slowing down is not going to help. Slowing down would sound like this. I am slowing down. I mean, you don't, you don't want me to go on, do you? I mean, that, that would drive you no, nuts. No, and it, I mean, it feels like, Horrible. right. And I, I've read that we're capable of absorbing information Correct. much faster than normal speech Correct. pace anyway. And, and so. The, so where the people consume what we have to say is in the pause. So the power is in the pause. They think about what you just said. It allows them to ideate for a minute and absorb it, consume it, and then feel comfortable that they can understand what's coming next. And so most speakers need to pause more rather than slow down if they've been told that they talk too fast, because you can understand me if I'm talking very, very quickly. But if I'm talking about anything that is complex, you're gonna need that space, that air in those beats to consume it. Now, this is, this is, this is hyper-specific to the medium that you're in, mind you, mm -hmm. because if you're, in, if you're in court and you're a litigator and you're giving a closing argument, well, you control that, that space. Nobody's going to interrupt you. At least nobody's supposed to interrupt you. Right. And so if you want to take a long beat for emphasis, you've got that time. If, however, you're in uh, some sort of conversation with six different people uh, if you take a very, 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 very long pause, they might think you're done. They're going to jump in. One of the reasons that people don't pause often is because if they do, other people start speaking and they would rather not listen to other people speak. <laughs> yep, definitely not. <laughs> and and on podcasts or the radio or even TV interviews, uh, pauses can become dead air. Right. So if you're being interviewed, I, I tend to pause much longer in between, you know, for, I, I have much longer, bigger beats when I'm having a conversation with somebody one-to-one -one in person, or certainly when I'm speaking, because if I pause too long on a podcast with a host that doesn't know me, they're going to think I'm done. Right. And you, and you don't have the body language. Yeah. 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 Exactly. You don't have the body language. So each medium is slightly different. However, do know that the power is in the pause. Uh, it is not necessarily just 
in the ideas because if they can't consume them, it's difficult for them. So first you have the table read, then you have content mapping where you're looking for operative words and phrases, transitions, uh, and beats, which are essentially pauses that allow the audience to consume what you just said and often have the most uh, intellectual stimulation during that moment and or the most emotional response during that beat. Now, once you've done your table reading and your content mapping, that's when you move into what's called blocking and staging. And it's just as it sounds, blocking and staging. How you stage your speech. Because if you're in a courtroom, are you standing behind your table the whole time? Are you standing at a podium the whole time? Are you moving? When are you going to them? Because that makes a difference. If you do move to them, it better not be at the same time you're talking about something that has any kind of aggressive tone. Because that is not going to work very well at all. Or if you're talking about uh, the the forward progression of your client's life and how they've really been uh, making strides and advancing, and you're moving backwards when you're talking about that, even just a step, it's going to potentially negate the argument in the minds of the viewer, even if they don't know why. So this is not body language. I, I'm not a. I, I don't teach body language. I don't say do this with your hands. Put your hands at this height. Uh, that that's not. Mm. Uh, yeah, for us, that's not that's not what we focus on. But how you use your body in conjunction with how you're trying to affect other people is what we focus on. And so that's very, very easy for us to see when we're working with somebody, when we're coaching them on how to give a speech. So that's blocking and staging. The reason that it's called blocking is because in the old days, when directors would stage a play, they'd have a little scale model mm. set. And then they'd have these little blocks that were to represent the actors and they'd move the blocks around and they would call it blocking. So actors were, I'm sure, very uh, lovingly, respectfully <laughs> referred to as blocks. I like that. <laughs> so uh, once you have table reading and content mapping, then you move into staging. After staging, then you go into improv and rewrite because you're, gonna, you're probably going to want some more rewrites and you're going to want to try some different things on your feet because working on your feet produces very different ideas and experiences than just writing at the computer. So first step is table read. Second step is content mapping. Third step is blocking and staging. Fourth step is, do you remember what I just said? Improv and rewrite. Yeah. There we go. He's listening. <laughs> and this is, where, and this is where you throw out your notes and just try to give your presentation without them, I, I assume. Exactly. This is where you start to go what's called off book. Mm -hmm. And you start to see, okay, well, how well do I know this thing? Ooh, I need a lot more rehearsal because <laughs> I'm not so sure. This is the meat. This is the deep part of the rehearsal process. And once you get to the point where you can do it without your notes, or if you need your notes just once in a while, then you, you refer to them. That's perfectly fine. But you bring in some guests. And this is the next step, and it's called invited rehearsal. Mm. Invited rehearsal. Well, you bring in some trusted allies who speak the same language. Maybe they've all read Steal the Show, so they all have that same language. And they can work with you on improving what you're doing. Now, this is very, very dangerous. And, and I say that just to be... I mean, I imagine you have to approach this without ego. You have to approach it without ego, but, but the, the danger is that... You're taking advice from people who don't actually know how to help you improve. Mm, mm -hmm. Now, they may be very good at public speaking. So I'm not suggesting that the people that you bring are not good at it. But being good at it and understanding why something is working or isn't working for somebody else and helping them make it work are two very different things. Yeah. So, you know, it's the difference between driving your car 
if you have like a Honda or a BMW on the roads around your house uh, and being the one in the booth who calls the entire race for a NASCAR racer, you know, it just, mm-hmm. that would be yep. like you being put in that position and telling the driver what, you know, he needs to do and the whole pit crew, what they need to do in order to win this race. You couldn't do it. It's a totally different skill. You could drive a car, but you probably can't do that. So, uh, I'm not saying that just because I want to keep myself in business. I'm saying that because a lot, because we see so many people steered in the wrong direction with well-intended advice. But here's the thing. I'll give you an example. If you just say to somebody, listen, just tell me what you think, you know, give me a, uh, I'm open to everything. And they say, well, I don't know. Your passion was a little too much. I think you're too passionate. And you're like, oh my God, I thought my passion was something people love me for. Okay. That's weird. But all right, I'll, I'll tone it down. I'll tone it down. And then what happens is it gets really flat. And in fact, your passion was not the problem. The person who gave you that feedback gave you the feedback because they thought that the passion was why they couldn't really understand what you were talking about. They had trouble following your argument. Their interpretation of it was that you were too passionate. Well, that's not actually the problem. The problem was it wasn't well organized. So if that content is better organized and you can bring your passion and urgency to that well-organized content and the argument is strong, well, then that passion is going to work for you and you want it. You don't want to let that go. It's incredibly important, in fact. So what we do during this invited rehearsal process is make sure that we drive the feedback. Mm -hmm. So we ask for very specific feedback so that people who are not professionals at giving feedback still can. For example, let's say you're trying to work on uh, reducing the pacing that you do, or you want to stop looking down because you have this habit of looking down at your feet every time uh, you are trying to think of the next thing you're going to say. Well, what do you do? You give, you, you bring somebody, you bring some people in, you give them a copy of the script and you say, listen, I want you to just make a mark anytime you see me pacing. And, mm. and it doesn't feel like it's intentional movement or you see me look down. And if it's not in the script, it's something that I just ad lib, just write down what I was saying. Okay. Now you know what to do with that feedback. He goes, Oh, okay, great. It, you're in control of it. They just had to look for what you told them to look for. If you're trying to identify whether or not the big idea is working in your presentation, because every, every speech has a big idea. If it doesn't have a big idea, it's probably not worth giving. So if you say to them, listen, my big idea is X, let me know if you, if that's what you got from the speech, of course, they're going to get it from the speech because they're going to be looking for it. But if you say to them at at the end, so what I'm looking for, the only feedback I want is this, what's my big idea? And if they can articulate it to you, then you know, you've accomplished it. If they don't, if they can't, then you got to go back to the drawing board, but you're driving that feedback. So you have a whole series of things that you're asking them. We have a um, a, a report, uh, that our clients use that trains them and, and gives them these, uh, these frameworks and outlines and worksheets uh, to use with people that they're trying to get feedback from that aren't professionals, because you're not always going to, you know, be able to uh, work with a professional. And sometimes you're going to need some support from, from your friends. So that's invited rehearsal and only bring in people who you trust, people who don't have an agenda of their own, people that are not competitive with you, uh, and people that, that really do think of you as quite special and remarkable and have 
your best interests in mind. This sounds a lot like the design process, uh, actually, for designing software or client experiences or anything like that, where you're getting structured feedback, either as part of your research stage or your testing stage. Um, it sounds very similar because you're, you're often, people are very good at articulating things they don't like, yes. but they're not always good at articulating why or, or figuring out, you know, what was actually going wrong. People rarely ask for the solutions that they actually want, right? And so that sounds really similar to something we've talked about a lot on the podcast about design thinking and the design process. Ah, isn't that great when you see consistency, you see patterns in yep. processes, <laughs> From one area to, I bet that's something that's interesting to you. Very satisfying to me, yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and that, and the beautiful thing is that's what a level of mastery gives you. If you have a level of mastery in craft in one area, you generally produce mastery in another craft much more quickly than you would have if you were starting all over from the bottom. Mm-hmm. Because there are so, there's so many consistencies between disciplines and most disciplines across appropriate. They take ideas from one discipline and put them into another, and then it creates new worlds. And then, you know, that's how we continue to grow. So, uh, so that's the invited rehearsal. Then the next two steps, the last two steps are what's called open rehearsal and dress and tech. Those are the last two. Hmm. So open rehearsal and dress and tech. So table read is one, content mapping two, uh, staging and blocking, blocking and staging number three, improv and rewrite number four, invited rehearsal number five, Open rehearsal number six. This is where you bring in a bigger audience. Uh, and it's likely you know these people, but you could have your friends bring some friends uh, or just, you know, grab a whole bunch of people uh, that you can find and you do your speech for them. And if you want to do it a few different times uh, at that same you know day or uh, different days, it's only going to help you. It's just like dress rehearsals uh, for a play. You don't, you know, you don't just open a play. You have previews, which are also in the dress rehearsals. Then you have previews. So there's this period of time where you have audiences because you really don't know if it's working until you have people responding to it. And, and do you want people responding to it for the first time? You, do you want those people to be the people that you have to convince? Or do you want to work it out on people that you don't actually have to uh, you know, change their minds? You don't right. have to get them to do anything. I, and I would think... I'd rather have the rehearsal time. And then that last step is dress and tech. And that's where you make sure that any technology that you're using uh, is seamlessly integrated into what you're doing uh, and that whatever clothes you're wearing uh, are selected in advance and, and that you wear in your rehearsals, especially your shoes, because the way you move is influenced by the shoes you wear. Hmm. If you go into a courtroom or an office building and the floors are very, very uh, slick, like hardwood, slick floors, and you're wearing a brand new pair of shoes with very hard leather soles, and you want to move quickly, or you might have some trouble. Yeah. You, just, you know, you might slip all over the place. So uh, we take uh, time to make sure that what we're wearing represents the role that we're playing and uh, affects the audience positively with respect to our objective. Uh, and also, we feel comfortable in, and we can move well. In. Well, the tech makes sense too, because like, the worst thing in the world, although it doesn't seem to bother many people as much as I think it should, but the worst thing in the world is when you start out by being incompetent with the technology that you need to give your presentation, right? You're, oh, yeah. <laughs> you're the, my my trust me. in you just, just uh, skydives yes, as soon as you start yes. doing that. <laughs> yes, it makes me cringe. I feel so bad. It's like, I die. No, it's terrible. And of yeah. course, you know, it, it one minute feels like 10, mm -hmm. you know, trying to get that tech to work. So in fact... 
we believe that if you are a professional speaker, certainly, and if you are a highly competent professional of any kind, and you have an incredibly high stakes speech to give, you should be able to give that speech without any technology whatsoever. The technology is a bonus because our assumption is that at some point you're going to need to give that speech without technology. And if you need that technology to A, know where you are in the speech, uh, or B, make any of your points for you, and you don't have it because something goes wrong with the tech, which will invariably happen, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're going to have a hard time. So that's why we believe that you should be able to give it without any technology whatsoever. And then any technology is just a bonus. Very cool. Thank you so much for that. Uh, that is more in-depth information on rehearsal than um, I think I've ever seen anywhere. Um, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and there's no secret why. Like, well, I went to law school. I didn't go to acting school. Yeah. So really, yeah. that's although, really helpful. Although, of course, my, my, uh, my perspective is that Law schools should be teaching all of this as a regular part of the curriculum for, especially for those that are going to be litigators. Mm -hmm. So I'm biased, but, uh, I'm just, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the call from Harvard, Yale, uh, Columbia law schools to say, wait a second, we we just heard the podcast. This was incredible. We got to bring it in and make it a core curriculum. (laughs) I won't hold my breath. So, um, we are including your 50 tips, uh, that you can't afford to miss in our podcast materials. And for listeners, the URL is in the introduction to this podcast. So you don't have to listen to the whole thing to, to wait for it. So if you need to get back to your office and get to your web browser, um, just listen to that first five, 10 minutes or so, and you'll be reminded of the URL. Um, but before we let you go, tell us about your book, just a little bit about it and, and why uh, it, people should consider picking it up. Sure. So Steal the Show is in three parts. The first part is on the performer's mindset. So some people love to dig into that right away because they do want to learn more about what does the world look like from a performer's perspective. Other people feel like, you know what, I already I already think that way. I'm on it. So I'm going to jump right to uh, the second part. Uh, and the second part are all the performer's principles. And this is, they are the principles that, are, that we adhere to at all times during the process. And then the third part of the book is a tour de force on public speaking technique in almost every medium you can imagine. So uh, you can jump from chapter to chapter to chapter depending on what you need to work on. But content development, uh, again, more in depth, of course, than we covered here in rehearsal, uh, performance techniques, and so much more. So it's a pretty comprehensive book. And it's not just written for people who want to give speeches all the time, but it's written for anybody that wants to shine during their spotlight moments. Very cool. And it, and the link will be in the show notes if you want to pick that up. And the book is called Steal the Show. Michael Port, thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Mm-hmm.